as well. Why don't you? And then we'll be safe. Okay. Good morning. <laughs> okay, so we're gonna we're, we're gonna start, even though we're a couple of minutes late. Um, again, welcome everybody. Uh, um, we're, we're actually up to chapter two, Yehezkel chapter two, verse eight. Um, before we do that, I'm just going to take a bit of a time out because uh, right at the end of the yes, I'm sorry to. I have your chart for my mother on the fifth uh, of uh, Elul. Frida uh, Rochel Batgavril. Frida Rochel Batgavril. We how what? Wish you a long life. How many years is that? Oh, over sixty years maybe. No, we yeah. wish you a long life. We wish you a long life. Okay. And uh, many happy memories of your of of uh, for you. Harry, um, mute everybody too. I'm going to mute everyone now. Okay, so I, I'm glad uh, Rob's, Rob, Rob's made it because right at the end of last year, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, uh, we're up to chapter 2, verse 8. Um, and in chapter 2, verse 7, we dealt with this, this issue that uh, is very important uh, of whether the, the Navi and whether, whether the prophets are actually speaking their own words or whether the prophets are speaking the exact verbatim words that God spoke to them. And right to the end of last year, um, Rob Hyde asked uh, the following question. This was the actual question that he posed. Um, these are his exact, exact words. With so many fake prophets, how were the Jews to know they should be, who should they, sh- they should be listening to with all the different ways that the messages were issued? Um, now, this is a very important question. Obviously, all the best questions come right at the end of the year. Um, it's something I want to deal with. I'm going to deal with it now before we go on to verse 8. Uh, I'm hoping it won't take the whole shear. Maybe it will, but um, it is a very important issue, and it's also very topical for two reasons. Number one is that the Torah actually dealt with it yesterday or two days ago in the parish, Parishes Re'eh, um, which we read on Shabbat, and it's also very, very fundamental uh, to Jewish belief uh, in the ideas of prophecy, and it goes to the very heart of what we should be doing during El. So I'm going to deal with that question uh, um, before we move on in chapter two. Uh, obviously, as Rob raised the issue, there is always complications in Judaism, not not recently, but there always, again, let me just mute everybody for everybody's comfort. Um, there is... Uh, or there have been problems in Jewish history uh, regarding false prophets. Now, false prophets uh, come in two flavors. There's the straight-out liars and charlatans who are not prophets. They say they're prophets and they're not. They make predictions, which are nonsense, um, out of their own imagination. That's one type of false prophet. There's another um, more pernicious type of false prophet, and that's people who use techniques, techniques to stimulate pseudo-prophetic experience. Their experiences are real. Um, they are taken over by higher powers. It's not God that's taking them over. Um, uh, the experience that they feel or that they go through um, is as real as any prophecy. And it leaves, leaves a residue in their imagination just like a real prophetic experience does. It's just that it comes from a parallel, opposite, non-holy point, non-holy source. Now, for the onlooker, 
um, it's very hard to distinguish between a prophecy that is real and one that came from a place of holiness that came directly from God or the opposite and it came from a place of tumult, came from a place of um, uh, impurity because the prophet experiences the same type of trance the same type of um, um, experience that a regular prophet uh, goes through and he's not faking it he trembles it's clear that he really is having a riveting experience just that the experience originated in the realm of the unholy so as rob raised the question how do we choose how do we know who is a real prophet um and who is a fake so here's the whole i'm going to give you the whole story so that uh, you know going into the month of Elul. It's something, like I said, it's a foundation of Jewish belief. The Rambam discusses it. Maimonides discusses it in the Usoli HaTorah, in the fundamental, uh, basic, fun, fundamental foundations of the Torah. Um, we understand very clearly the beginnings of all the other religions, Buddhism, Christianity, Islam, and all the modern cults. Uh, we can envision uh, how such faiths and religions started. But how do we explain Judaism's genesis? What rational, natural explanation describes the events leading to the only claim of mass revelation and mass prophecy in 4,000 years of uh, recorded human history? So the Rambam writes in the laws of the laws of Yesodei HaTorah, the foundations of the Torah, this is in chapter eight. And this, this, a lot of this is going to come as a bit of a shock to people. He poses the following question. Why do people believe in Moshe Rabbeinu? And he answers as follows. He says, the Jews, the Israelites did not believe in Moshe Rabbeinu, in Moses, our teacher, because of the wonders that he performed. Whenever anyone's belief is based on wonders and miracles, the commitment of his heart has shortcomings. Because it is possible to perform a wonder through magic or sorcery, or in our case, uh, science, that looks like magic. All the wonders performed by Moshe in the desert were not intended to serve as proof of the legitimacy of his prophecy, but rather were performed for a purpose. It was necessary to drown the Egyptians. So he facilitated the splitting of the Red Sea that sank them. We needed food, so he facilitated the provision of manna, bread from heaven. We were thirsty, so he provisioned a situation where he got to split the rock, providing us with water. Korath's band of mutineers rebelled against him, and so because of him, the earth swallowed them up. And the same applies to everything else that happened in the Torah, all the miraculous events that happened in the Torah. So says the Rambam, it is not the miracles of Moshe Rabbeinu that caused people to believe in him. What is the source of our belief? So he says the revelation on Mount Sinai, our eyes saw, our ears heard, there was fire, thunder, and lightning. Moshe Rabbeinu entered the thick clouds, the voice spoke to him, and we heard the words, Moshe, Moshe, go and tell them the following. This is what the Apostle said, I'm reading the, the words of the Rambam here, he's now quoting from the Torah. This is in Devorim chapter 5, verses 3 and 4. Hashem Abris. Not with our forefathers did God make this, this promise. Uh, he's making this promise, this deal, giving us the Torah today. With us, 
all of us who are here alive today. Ponim baponim dibeh Hashem Face to face did God speak to you at the mountain. Mitocha eish. From in the, from the midst of the fire. How is it known that the, continues the Rambam, Maimonides, how is it known that the revelation at Mount Sinai alone is proof of the truth of Moses' prophecy that leads no shortcomings, no ideas that it could be false? So the book of Exodus, Shemos, chapter 19, verse 9, clearly says, God said to Moshe, I came to you in a thick cloud. In order that the people should hear when I speak to you. And they will believe in you forever. Moses relayed the words of the people to God. It appears from this verse that before this moment in time, at the, uh, the time of the uh, revelation on Mount Sinai, they did not believe in Moshe Rabbeinu with a faith that would last forever. Here, God has to, again, I need to mute people are joining and I need to mute people. Sorry. Uh, it's a, it's, yeah. It appears quite clear from the text of Shemaz. But before this moment in time, before the revelation of Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai, they did not believe in Moshe with a faith that would last forever. Um, but rather they had faith in him, they had trust in him, but with certain suspicions and certain doubts. But the experience of 2.3 million people hearing God speaking directly to Moshe is the only reason why they trusted, believed in him then and forever. Our belief in Moshe has never waned, ever. It's always been the central theme of Judaism. Zichru Torah Moshe Avdi. The last prophecy in the whole of Tanakh. Remember the Torah that belonged to my servant Moshe. He is the centerpiece of prophecy. He is the father of prophecy. And the belief in him that comes forever is not based on miracles, says the Rambam. It's based on the revelation witnessed by 2.3 million people standing at Mount Sinai. Now, it's important to understand there are only two types of religion in this world. There's a religion that claims national revelation, and there are religions that claim personal revelation. In the group that contains personal revelation, you have every religion on the planet except for one. In the group that believes in a national revelation, there is only one religion in that group. That is Judaism. And the question is, why is it that no other religion apart from Judaism claims a national revelation? The fact that everybody heard God's voice. In every other religion, it's all about him and a couple of people, (laughs) one guy in a cave, one guy on a cross, etc., etc., uh, the beginnings of all ancient and more, more, uh, modern religions have a common thread. One or two people have a revelation and persuade others to follow. So, for example, the Buddhists tell us that Siddhartha Gautama launched Buddhism after his solitary ascendance through the eight stages of transit insight. Marvelous. Islamic texts, the Quran, tell us that Muhammad founded, founded Islam 
following the first of many personal prophetic experiences. Christian writings reveal that Paul first met Jesus, converted to Christianity, and he spread the faith more than three decades after Jesus' death. Joseph Smith Jr. and his partner Oliver Cowdery launched the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which we call the Mormons, after two men were visited by angels. Um, Sung Mayung Moon launched the Unification Church after privately receiving direct orders to do so from Jesus himself. The beginnings of all these religions, as well as every other one, Children of God, Christian Science, Akanka, Elan Vitel, I Am, Theosophy, I could go on for you know, hundreds of them. Every single one of them. The, the beginnings of all world religions are equally unverifiable. Never, ever does a large, clearly identifiable group of people experience prophecy and live to tell the, the tale and live to tell about it. <clears throat> Moreover, in a handful of cases, where in large groups of people supposedly witness miracles, rarely are these witnesses named okay. or identified in any way that would allow for any type of verification. And in the very exceptional cases involving clearly identifiable groups of witnesses, Never more than one or two of the religion's current adherents claim to have been descended from these witnesses. In all these cases, the religion's, the religion's credibility rests on the credibility of one of its two founders. While it's certainly possible that the beginnings claimed by any of the thousands of sects and cults in the world and the 300 major religions could be true, it's easy to, how, to imagine how charismatic charlatans could have launched any of these movements. The only exception to this rule is Judaism. The Torah does not claim that one man or two men or three men or a dozen men or a prostitute and a tax collector heard God speak. The Torah claims that every Jewish man, woman and child alive in 1312 BCE uh, approximately 2.3, between 2.3 and 3 million people heard God speak at Mount Sinai and survived to teach their descendants about the event. Here we have an easily identifiable group, namely the whole of Jewry, the whole of the Israelites, clan, tribes, who could have verified or denied the story at any time during the first two or three generations after the alleged mass prophecy transpired on Mount Sinai. While it's easy to imagine how most religious mythologies could have been fabricated and spread, understanding how Judaism could be a lie requires a much more extensive analysis. The claim that three million people heard God speak appears in every intact Torah scroll ever found. The claim is either true or false. If it's a lie and no such revelation took place on Mount Sinai, um, at some time in the past, someone must have made such a claim. If we contemplate what the scene must have looked like when a false claim of national prophecy was first launched, we find ourselves locked into one of two scenarios. Either the person making the claim either told his followers, A, that the national prophecy happened in the present, you personally heard God speak, or B, that the national prophecy happened in the past. Your ancestors once heard God speak to you. The first theory we'll call the Moshe Rabbeinu theory, 
since the Torah records that Moshe was the name of the leader of world Jewry when the prophecy took place on Mount Sinai. We call the second possibility the Jimmy theory, since the leader during the post-revelation period could not have been Moshe Rabbeinu. He might as well have been someone called Jimmy. Now, these two theories. According to the Moshe Rabbeinu theory, ancient Jewish leader told a foolish lie. He told the people, 2.3 million, between 2.3 and 3 million people, you personally heard God speak, and he said these words to you, Onochi Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God. That's what Moshe Rabbeinu told them, and he was lying. We can imagine the scene as people first examine the supposedly divine Torah, and their charismatic leader tried to explain to Jewry some of the text's more unpleasant rituals. Circumcision, for example. Yes, use a very sharp knife and a quick downward motion. And don't forget, it was God who personally told you you've got to do this. People would probably know if they had heard God speak. And if they hadn't heard God speak, they might be a little hesitant to accept the Torah's validity. Because people won't accept foolish, checkable lies. Certainly those that demand self-destructive behavior like a circumcision. Even critics who posit that the Torah is a fictional man-made document reject the Moses theory. The idea that Moses fooled 2.3 or between 2.3 and 3 million people on Mount Sinai into believing God spoke to them. That theory has been rejected even by the biblical scholars. Those who view the Torah as a work of human imagination, therefore, will put their faith in the Jimmy theory. They posit this, that the initial lie was God did not speak to you, but to your ancestors. God spoke to your ancestors and he gave them the Torah. They carried the Jewish tradition for a period, but then they fumbled it and it was forgotten for many, many years. And now I, Jimmy... I'm returning to you and coming and revealing to you your long-lost religious heritage. When would Jimmy claim the national prophecy took place? If he said it happened recently uh, to his followers' parents or grandparents or great-grandparents, the lie would be checked, discovered, and rejected. Therefore, this Jimmy must claim the national prophecy took place during ancient times. 500, 700, 1,000 years earlier. This is a smart lie insofar as it can't be checked. Followers would understand why they have no memory of a tradition supposedly lost hundreds or maybe even a 1,000 years before. However, followers would reasonably wonder how Jimmy himself recalls this otherwise forgotten tradition. Jimmy could explain... um, Again, with a very smart, uncheckable lie, claiming that God spoke to him alone and revealed the Torah's long-lost text and the story of its original revelation on Mount Sinai. And indeed, most modern skeptics gravitate towards this type of Jimmy theory. That somebody got onto his high horse a thousand years after the Torah was given and said, you Jewish people, you people... You were, you've forgotten it, you've lost the tradition, but I'm here to tell you that God appeared to me to remind you that you were on Mount Sinai, all of you, 
a thousand years ago. Now, a major problem with this theory is the obvious one. Why have we never heard of Jimmy or his heroic resurrection of Judaism? Certainly one of the most significant events in Jewish history would have been the blunder when world jury forgot that they were, that they were standing on Mount Sinai, three million of them, all having a prophetic experience of God. And not only that, what about the recovery? When Jimmy reminded the Jews about the national prophecy on Mount Sinai. Yet in an otherwise comprehensive Jewish history, we find no mention of such a claim. Jewish texts describe myriad historical crises, the heroes who assisted during the difficult times. We know that Moshe brought the Torah down from Mount Sinai. Joshua brought the Jews into the land of Israel. David slew Goliath. Solomon built the temple. Ezra brought the Jews back from the, to the land of Israel from Babylonia. We know that Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, wrote the Mishnah. We know that Ravina and Ravashi compiled the Talmud. We know all about Maimonides, Nachmanides, and thousands of other stars of medieval Jewry, and what their respective contributions were throughout the generations. We possess detailed records about every great Jewish personality, except for one, Jimmy. We don't have any mention of Jimmy, the man who reminded Jewry that they were, they were the only people in human history ever to experience national prophecy. And we don't have any record of the amnesia Jimmy rescued them from. Now, until 200 years ago, with the founding of the reform movement, every Jew and member of a Jewish breakaway group, like the Christians, the Sadducees, the Karaites, every breakaway group from Judaism, affirmed that ancient Jewry, the Christians still do it today, so do the Sadducees, so do the Karaites, so do every breakaway group from Judaism. They all affirm that ancient Jewry, their direct ancestors, had experienced a national prophecy on Mount Sinai with millions of people present. Indeed, virtually every Jew alive today can trace himself back to Orthodox relatives, usually within four or five generations, who believed with all their heart and soul that they were links in an unbroken gene genealogical chain going back to Mount Sinai. Yet not a single ancient or contemporary individual or religious community has any tradition about the man who should have been the second greatest hero in Jewish history, Jimmy, the man that saved Judaism. Why is that? A calm, unbiased observer will be quick to admit that perhaps there never was a Jimmy who lied about a national revelation, perhaps something supernatural really did happen on Mount Sinai. Now, in the present, we have some idiots, uh, most notably a professor of uh, uh, moronism from Harvard University called Professor Friedman, who tried to pin the title of Jimmy on minor players like Chilkiol, Shafan, Yoshiahu, or Ezra, and point to them as editors of the text. At best, these attempts are forced and ask the reader to interpret texts with a crowbar and a mallet. They also require shamefully contrived rationalizations, attempting to explain why not one biblical verse explicit, explicitly mentions the key point about the fact that the Jews must have forgotten about the Torah. 
and how Jimmy reintroduced them to it. And why the name of the second most important Jewish history next to Moshe Rabbeinu appears zero times in the Torah or the Tanakh. Skeptics who would construct apparently reasonable scenarios explaining Judaism's beginning are thus faced with a paradox. As they become more convinced of any scenario or any plausibility, they become increasingly incapable of explaining why no other group in history, no other religious group, sees the obvious, simple, and valuable claim of national revelation and national prophecy. Maybe one generation of Jews was unusually wily and succeeded in forming and maintaining a national conspiracy. Maybe one generation of Jews were exceedingly gullible and incorporated the whole story of the Torah without checking with their older relatives. Maybe the Jews were developmentally disabled or on a massive drug trip. Maybe thunder in the desert sounded like, Onochi Hashem Elokecho, I am the Lord your God. Whatever scenario we formulate, we face the following challenge. If it's natural for an entire people to think that they or their ancestors heard God speak, why didn't it happen more than once in history? Just as, as thousands of failed trials would persuade us, that wood cannot naturally be transformed into gold, so too the total absence from history of the most basic religious claim, national revelation, should tell us that people don't naturally just randomly come to the conclusion that they or their ancestors experienced prophecy. So, as I mentioned, we understand the beginnings of Buddhism, the beginnings of Christianity, Islam and all the modern cults. We can envisage how such faiths started, but how do we explain the Genesis? What? That was interesting. From Hershey's. But how do we explain? How do we explain the Genesis of Jude? Can people? What's going on with, with the... Can people keep themselves muted, please? Yeah. Maybe, I don't know. So back, back to what I was saying. How do we explain the genesis of Judaism? What rational, national, natural explanation describes the events leading to the only claim of mass revelation in 4,000 years of human history? Again, the voice of the Torah. Shemos, chapter 19. Vayom HaShem El Moshe. Hinei Onochi Bo'elecho. I'm coming to you, Ba'av Hernon. In a cloud. Ba'avoy Yishma Om Bidivrai Imoch. So that the people will hear me speaking with you. V'gam B'choy Yaminu L'Olam. And they will believe in you forever. You, Moshe Rabbeinu. So here is the problem. This is the problem. They believed in Moshe Rabbeinu as a prophet because they heard God speaking to him. He becomes the central figure in Judaism. After God, obviously. He is the central piece of the jigsaw. He is the Torah giver. 
He is the man that three million, between 2.3 and 3 million people heard being spoken to directly by Moshe Rabbeinu on Mount Sinai. That is why we believe in Moshe Rabbeinu. Not just now. We say it every morning in David. But here is the problem. What about all the other prophets? Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Eliyahu, Elijah the prophet, Elisha, Shmuel, Samuel, Yechezkel, who we're dealing with now, the great Yechezkel ben Buzi Hakai, Yirmiyoh, Jeremiah, Hosea, the list goes on, there's 48 of them. Did the people hear God speaking to them? No. God, the people never heard God speaking to them. They had a prophetic vision throughout their lives or prophetic visions throughout their lives that was heard by them only, not by God, not by the people. So why are they all accepted as prophets? I'll extend the question slightly like this. If the only compelling reason to follow a prophet is like the Rambam describes, is if you hear God speak to them directly, then all these other prophets should have been rejected by the people. The fact is, they were all accepted by the Jewish people. They treated them very badly, that's for sure. But there's no indication anywhere in the Tanakh that any of these prophets was ever accused of being a false prophet. Shmuel, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Yechezkel, Shmuel, Yeshayahu, Eliyahu, Elisha, not even the rotten pagan kings in the northern kingdom accused Eliyahu and Avi, Elijah the prophet, of not being a prophet of God. So what, what made them a prophet? If the whole idea of prophecy, the people believed in Moshe as a prophet because they heard God speak to him, then where do these prophets get off calling themselves prophets? So the answer is this. The reason why the Jewish people believed these guys were all prophets is because Moshe told them to. Moshe told them, told them that anyone who fulfills certain conditions, they should be treated as a prophet. Not that you know that they are a prophet, but you must treat them as a prophet. There are four conditions that were laid down by Halakhla Moshe Bissinai, that were laid down by Moses on Mount Sinai. Tests, conditions, that determine whether somebody should be treated as a prophet. Not that they would, you would know definitely that they were a prophet, but you had to treat them as a prophet. Number one, he must be righteous, which is a little bit subjective. Number two, he has to be a scholar in the whole of the Torah, which is not subjective. Number three, he has to be able to do uh, perform an action that is beyond the derech hateva, beyond natural, uh, the natural world, and or display foreknowledge. And his demonstration either in performing something which is chutzla derech hateva, beyond the realms of the natural world, or displaying foreknowledge has to be 100% correct. And number four, he has to claim to be a prophet. Any person that fulfills these four conditions by Torah law, this person should be treated like a prophet. Again, I want to stress, not that you know he is a prophet, but you have to treat him as a prophet. 
The comparison, if you want some sort of analogy, the comparison can be likened to a basin, a Jewish court. If you have two witnesses who say they saw a crime and pass the rigorous cross-examination of the Dayanim, of the judges, then the law is that the alleged perpetrator is found guilty and punished. The question is, do the judges, the Dayanim, know he is guilty? The answer is no. They don't know he is guilty. The judges don't know for sure that he is guilty. The Dayan himself wasn't a witness. But yet the Torah law demands in these cases where evidence is presented and there's no counter evidence to, to, to dismiss the charges, that the perpetrator should be punished under those circumstances, despite the fact that the judge not being 100% sure of his guilt. Here too, when we're talking about prophecy, where an individual meets the, the four conditions of Moshe Rabbeinu, he needs to be treated as a prophet, because Moshe said that is the rule. And of course, we believe in Moshe forever, because that's written in the Torah. Now, after having said all that, you have to come to a really radical conclusion. And the really radical conclusion is this. We don't know for sure that Yeshayahu, Isaiah, Eliyahu, Eli, uh, uh, Elijah, Elisha, Shmuel, Yechezkel in our particular case, Jeremiah, Yeremiah, Hosea, we got Esther, Hannah, and God, the list goes on, 48 of them. We don't know that they were prophets. But under Moshe's instruction, we were required to treat them as prophets. So, let's imagine this. What would happen if a chap came along and he claimed he is a prophet? That's number one. He, he appears to be a great tzaddik. And he demonstrates that he's a great scholar. So the people naturally say to him, well, you've fulfilled three of Moshe Rabbeinu's four conditions. Uh, you know, you're, you claim to be a prophet. You're a, you appear to be a great tzaddik. And you're obviously a tremendous scholar. But now you need to do it, give us a display of a miraculous power or foreknowledge. So the man says, okay, come down to the lake and I'll show you. The man then takes a stroll across the Kinneret and walks back across the top of the water. Then he turns some water into wine. Then he feeds a multitude of people with one loaf of bread and one piece of fish. So the people under Moshe's rules treat him like a prophet and ask him, what is your message? What message do you bring from God in your prophecy? And he says, my message is not everything Moshe Rabbeinu said was true. Not everything Moshe Rabbeinu said was reliable. Not everything Moshe Rabbeinu said is up to date. What will be the response of the people? The response of the people is, sorry, mate, you're making a big mistake here. Because we are only treating you as a prophet because we are following the rules set out by Moshe. And now you're telling us we can't trust Moshe. You have therefore abrogated your own message. Your message cancels out your own authority. So if you are right, 
by definition, you must be wrong and you can't be a prophet. And that is the reason why early Christianity had very little effect or traction on the Jews. Because anyone who came and claimed to have re that you have to revise God's Torah, Moshe's Torah, in any way, shape or form, by definition, it cannot be a prophet, despite performing a myriad of miracles. Because a prophet's authority comes from Moshe. Moshe wrote the Torah. By dismissing some of Moshe's laws, he is essentially saying or dismissing the fact that he still carries the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu. And this is quite clear from the parasha, from the Torah itself. Chapter 13 of Devorim, verses 2 to 4, says, Ki yokum If there will arise among you a prophet, or a dreamer of dreams, or, and he foretells the future, or he performs a miracle, and the sign and the miracle or the foreknowledge that he does happens and it all checks out 100%. He predicts the first uh, six winners at Belmont Park. And then he says to you, My message is from God, let's go and worship Christianity. Let's all convert to Islam. Let's all make a cheeseburger. Let's all go and eat lobster for dinner. Lo sishmal You're not allowed to listen to the word of that prophet, even though he's fulfilled all four conditions. Oh, el cholomachalomo, or this dreamer. This is a test. It's a test from God. Lodas to... No, to see how trusting you are in your God and the rules of the Torah and how much you are connected to God, your love for God, with all your heart and with all your soul. What we see is that all later prophets lean on Moshe Rabbeinu. They rely on Moshe Rabbeinu. All later prophets are only accepted because of the authority of Moshe Rabbeinu. He is the source of all prophetic authority. I just want to give you an, an application of this idea from a Gemara in Baba Bashra on that Yud base. It's a very, very difficult Gemara. I'll try and explain it to you as best I can. The Gemara there makes the following statement. A Talmud Chochem is superior to a prophet. If there was a, a disagreement between a Talmud Chochem and a prophet in the question of Halacha, we listen to the Talmud Chochem. And the Gemara gives the following proof. The Gemara says there were two rabbis discussing a matter of Halacha. One rabbi says the Halacha is X for reason Y. The Halacha is A for reason B. The other rabbi says... You know, when you said that halacha, you jogged my memory. And just as you said your rationale, I remembered that we have a tradition, a Masorah, a Kabbalah from Moshe Rabbeinu, that that is correct. What you said is correct. That the halacha is A because of reason B. 
At which point the Gemara concludes, here we have proof that a Talmud Chochem is superior to a prophet. Now, a simple reading of that Gemara is very difficult to understand. How does that, that, that case study of this rabbi telling you a halacha, halacha A, because of reason B, and the other Talmud Chochem saying, and just as you were saying that, I remembered, we've got a tradition going back to Moshe that you're quite right. The halacha is A because of reason B. How does that prove that example that the Gemara gives? How does that prove that a Talmud Chochem is superior to a Novi? So in order to answer that, you have to understand that the Gemara here is very narrow. And the Gemara here assumes, as it very often does, as I've pointed out to you on many occasions, you have to read the Gemara as if it's a conversation in physics between Einstein and Oppenheimer. Now, and you're a bystander. In order to be able to understand what they're saying, you have to have a deep background into the subject matter they are discussing. Very often we learn Gemara, particularly if you're learning Dafyomi, and we don't have that background. So our understanding of the Gemara is shallow at best. Here the Gemara is particularly narrow. And the Gemara is assuming that you have a background that it does not elaborate on. So let's imagine a debate between a Talmud Chochem and a prophet. A, a, debate, a debate between a great rabbi, Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, and Yeshayahu, Isaiah, or Yechezkel, our prophet, or Jeremiah. But you can't imagine a debate between a Talmud Chochem and Moshe can you? Because all a Talmud Chochem is, by definition, is someone who knows what Moshe taught. A Talmud Chochem can't have a debate with Moshe because the definition of a Talmud Chochem is somebody that learns Moshe's laws. A Talmud Chochem, his claim to fame is that he knows what Moshe said. So clearly that type of debate is fruitless. So let's go back to the debate between a Talmud Chochem and Yeshayahu, a Talmud Chochem and Yirmiyahu, a Talmud Chochem and Yechezkel. The Talmud Chochem is quoting Moshe Rabbeinu. So the debate is between Moshe, what Moshe said, versus what Yeshayahu or Yirmiyahu said. That's an easily resolved question. The victor is obviously what Moshe said. Because the Talmud Chochem is a mouthpiece for what Moshe said, and therefore the Talmud Chochem, speaking in the name of Moshe, trumps Yeshayahu and Yirmiyah every time. That is not what the Gemara here is talking about, because that is obvious, that a Talmud Chochem speaks with the voice of Moshe Rabbeinu. And therefore, if a prophet comes and disagrees with the Talmud Chochem, and he's disagreeing with his own, the person that gave him his authority in the first place. So the, that, that confrontation is an obvious outcome. The Talmud Chochem always wins that conversation. What the Gemara is telling you here is this. What happens when a Talmud Chochem interprets what Moshe Rabbeinu said? What you are getting then from the Talmud Chochem is not pure Moshe Rabbeinu, but rather an interpretation of Moshe, filtered by, say, Rabbi Yehuda in the Gemara. Rabbi Yehuda reads a Pasuk in the Torah and interprets it. 
He is interpreting what Moshe said. He is filtering the words of Moshe. Then the question in the Gemara becomes, in a debate between a Talmud Chacham interpreting the words of Moshe versus the words of a prophet, who should we listen to? And the answer to that question is not at all obvious. So let's go back to the Gemara. Two rabbis were discussing a matter of halacha. One says that halacha is A because of reason B. The other says, you know, when you said that halacha and that reason, you jogged my memory. And just as you said your rationale for the halacha, I remember that we have a tradition, a Masorah, a Kabbalah from Moshe Rabbeinu, that that's correct, that that's what the law is. As you said, the halacha is A because of reason B. At which point the Gemara says, here we have a proof that a Talmud Chacham is superior to a prophet. And the reason is this. The first rabbi successfully interpreted, rationalized the law. This was confirmed by the second rabbi's comment. You jogged my memory and I remembered that we have a Masorah to support what you said. What the Gemara is telling you is that the methodology and the mind of a Talmud Chacham is the right tool for interpreting Moshe's law and interpreting the Torah and deriving the intention of the Torah. Not the meaning of the Torah, the intention. It's very important. I've stressed this many times before. There's a a world of difference between meaning and intention. Words have meanings. Authors have intentions. There's a huge difference. We're interested not in the meaning of the words in the Torah. We're interested in the intention of the author. What the Gemara is proving here, and what the Gemara is telling you, is that the Talmud Chacham is superior to the Prophet, even when the Rabbis are merely interpreting Moshe Rabbeinu. Because the Talmud Chacham's interpretation of Moshe is more Moshe than a Prophet. This means that Moshe's guidance is still available to us. And people forget this. So even though we have no prophets in our time, Moshe's guidance is still available to us because we do have Talmidi Chachamim. And we have the books of Talmidi Chachamim going back thousands of years. Rabbis who successfully interpreted the intention of Moshe Rabbeinu. That is the essence of how we know about prophecy, how we know what a prophet is, and really the radical answer to Rob Hyde's question is, you're right, we don't know for sure that any particular individual is a prophet. We are just taking Moshe Rabbeinu's principle, or four principles, or four conditions, at which point, if all four conditions are achieved, by a particular individual, we are required by Torah law to treat him like a prophet. But if he, for any reason, decrees in a, or in delivers a prophecy that says one of the laws of Moshe Rabbeinu should be broken, at that point we reject him as a prophet because his legitimacy comes from the fact that he, uh, he, his legitimacy comes from Moshe Rabbeinu himself. 
if he starts to disagree with the Torah of Moshe Rabbeinu, this law that Moshe Rabbeinu wrote down is out of date. It's immoral. It's this, it's that, it's the other. At that point, we reject him completely. Now, before we finish, I'm glad I've got this uh, almost completely done in this period. I wanted to get it done. I just want to deal with two footnotes. Footnote number one, the Mishnah Torah, the halachic work of the Rambam, in Yisode HaTorah, again, in the foundations of the Torah, chapter 10 this time. Another aspect of prophecy. A prophet of whom another prophet testified that he is a prophet, is an established prophet, and needs no further test. In other words, in the era that we're dealing with, there are quite a few prophets around. And if Yechezkel, for example, would tell you that Yermia is a prophet, you would have to believe it. Once a prophet has fulfilled the four conditions of Moshe Rabbeinu and is treated like a prophet, if he indicates that Mr. X, his cousin or his friend or this other guy that, you know, he knows, is also a prophet, we believe him and we treat the other person like a prophet. One of the reasons is that when one prophet receives prophecy, the others receive the same prophecy too. And it's quite clear, or it seems to be quite clear, that they are aware of the other people, yeah, the other yeah. prophets that are receiving prophecy at the same time. Right. So if Yechezkel says, you know, Joe Smith down the street is a prophet, we are required, says the Rambam, to treat him like that, to treat him as such. And he says, because Moshe, Moshe vouched for Yahushua, and all of Israel believed in him before he ever delivered a sign. That Yahushua was treated like Moshe's protege, treated like a leader, and treated like a prophet, even though he hadn't fulfilled Moshe's four conditions. He was treated like a prophet on Moshe's say-so. So must it be, says the Rambam, throughout all the generations. A prophet whose prophecy has, had already been proclaimed, and who words, and whose words were believed time after time, or if another prophet gave testimony concerning him, and he continued to follow the paths of prophecy, must not be looked upon with suspicious thoughts, or question the truth of his prophecy. In other words, a prophet with a history of prophecy, there comes no point at which his prophecy should be questioned. And it is forbidden to test him more than necessary, but since a prophet is proclaimed, they should believe and know that God is among them and not suspect or whisper behind his back, as it is said concerning this subject. And that brings us full circle back to the second chapter of Yechezkel, chapter 2, verse 5. Yodu ki yovu, ki novi hoya Our chapter, chapter 2, verse 5, the Rambam quotes it. God told Yechezkel, you're going to speak to the Jewish people so that the Jewish people, the Yodu, they will experience you and they will experience the fact that there is a prophet among them. That is the Rambam. The last point I want to make, which is back right on time, all Tamidichachonim and all prophets lean on Moshe Rabbeinu for certification. 
Talmidei Chachomim interpret Moshe's law, interpret Moshe's Torah. Prophets become prophets because of Moshe's conditions of prophecy. As we discussed earlier, so too the Mashiach leans on Moshe for certification as a prophet, as a Talmud Chacham, and as a leader and king of Israel. As the Rambam makes it absolutely clear, in the future, the Messianic king will arise and renew the Davidic dynasty, restoring to it its initial sovereignty. He will build the temple and gather the dispersed of Israel. Then in his days, the observance of all the statutes, the Chukim, will return to their previous state. We will offer sacrifices, observe the sabbatical Shemitah and Yovel Jubilee years, according to all their particulars as described by Moshe's Torah. Anyone who does not believe in him or does not await his coming, not denies not only the statements of the prophets who rely on Moshe's authority, but those of the Torah and Moshe, our teacher himself. The Torah, Moshe's Torah, testified to his coming. This is Devarim. God will bring back your exiles. He will gather you from amongst all the nations of the world. That God had dispersed you to through time. If even if your exiles are at the edge of the universe, God will gather you from there and he will take you from there. And he will bring you back to the land. Which your fathers possess and conquered. And he will make you more numerous than your forefathers ever were. That is how we understand. That's not how we understand prophecy. That's how we understand what a prophet is. That is the top and bottom of it. Um... I hope everybody understood that. Um, it's an interlude, it's an addendum, but it was a very important question that Rob asked. And um, I felt absolutely necessary to be answered, particularly considering in yesterday's parasha, which dealt with this issue. And also the fact that we're coming into, into Elo and the idea of Bitochon, the belief in Moshe Rabbeinu, is the centerpiece. But it's not just belief. Judaism isn't just belief in God. Judaism is also belief in the central figure of Judaism, that Moshe Rabbeinu was the prophet who gave the Torah, and he is the father. He is the tree that all Tamidi Chachomim lean on, and he's the tree that all prophets lean on too. Questions up to this point? question. Yeah. Um, so the Ramchal writes that um, there's two types of prophets. There's Moshe and everybody else. Yeah, I, I, I'm not discussing the Ramchal. I'm not discussing the philosophy of how prophecy is, 
is given and how, how the prophets themselves receive it and the, the hierarchy of prophecy. I just wanted to give you the answer to the question. How do we know a prophet is a prophet? But my, but my question is, did Moshe fulfill the four tests of Moshe? Yes. <laughs> but he fulfilled them from God's perspective, not, not from another human being's perspective. He was, of it. he was of it. He was of it. Yes. Before the burning bush. Before the burning bush. That's why God uh, took him to the burning bush. And also, in terms of a false prophet, do they all know that they are prophesizing falsely? No. It's an issue that I don't want to deal with because the subject matter was not false prophets. The subject matter was true prophets. If you, if you wanted to share on false prophets and how they can delude themselves, it's a completely different issue. It's a, a longer share, but it doesn't really affect us because we're dealing with, we're dealing with Yechezkel. Now, again, the radical conclusion you've got now going forward with Yechezkel is we don't know he's a prophet. We're relying on Moshe Rabbeinu. We're leaning on Moshe Rabbeinu for the fact that he is a prophet. But, uh, you know, we've got uh, two and a half thousand years of Jews that believe that Yechezkel was a prophet. And by the end of the book, I promise you, you'll believe that Yechezkel was a prophet. I mean, you've heard that you've, you've, you've gone through seven months of the first chapter. Um, so you should be pretty convinced now that he's, uh, he fulfills the conditions of Moshe Rabbeinu. Um, yeah. So uh, Yechezkel is a prophet. Uh, Yechezkel is a prophet based on the four conditions of Moshe Rabbeinu. And it's as simple as that. I could have said that right at the start, and we could have gone on to a completely different year. But I wanted to, everyone to understand it from A to Z, or A to Z, for the English speakers and for the American speakers. Um, Efri, you cited, hold on, chat here. You cited Esther as a prophetess. Did she claim or have foreknowledge? Um, she did. It's quite clear that she wrote the... Um, the Megillus Esther, which is why the Megillus Esther is uh, got Thomas Yadaim on it. You're not supposed to touch the cloth of the Megillus Esther. It contains Tuma. Any any cloth that uh, was written with Ruach HaKodesh or with prophecy, like the Torah scroll itself, we don't touch it. It, it creates Tuma on your fingers, so you're supposed to touch it with a talus. We know that the Gomorrah Megillah says that Megillus Esther has got Thomas Yadaim. It was written with prophecy. And the Gemara brings various proofs from uh, Abayah and Robber and Shmuel and Rav and various other proofs. One of the proofs the Gemara brings there, it says that Haman knew in his heart, or Haman said in his heart. Now, if she wasn't a prophet, she wouldn't be able to write that. And the various other proofs from the Gemara, Kasha um, Ovadati Ovadati, etc., etc. There are various proofs from uh, the Gemara in, in, in Megillah that she had Ruach HaKodesh. Vatilbash, um, um, the Possek says, Vatilbash, Vatilbash, just a second, let me just remember the Possek. Uh, she sent the clothes to Mordechai. No, when she went to, when she went to, when she went to see, um, sure. my memory is, you know, I'm, you get to my age now. Um, <laughs> um, and 
you know, you, you start to forget things. Batilbash, uh, Esther Malchus. It says in chapter, yeah, in Esther, in chapter 5, it says, Batilbash, Esther Malchus. It should say, Batilbash, Esther, big day Malchus. And the Gemara says, why doesn't it say that she put on the clothes, royal clothes? It says, Batilbash, Esther, Malchus. So the Gemara says, at the point where she went in to see King Ahasuerus, she was clothed in Malchus, in God's Malchus. She was enclosed, clothed in Ruach HaKodesh. The Gemara brings a whole list of proofs that she was a prophetess. She's one of the seven prophetesses of Israel. Uh, 40, 48 prophets, seven prophetesses. Okay. Any other uh, outstanding next week, please, God? Excellent we'll... presentation, Harry. It's an excellent presentation. I promise you to Yes. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, will these four qualities apply to Mashiach? Yes. The Rambam just said so. I just read the Rambam. He said exactly, exactly that. Um, um, please, God, next week um, we can get back on track. Rob, by the way, uh, thank you for the question. It was a very important question, very, um, at an appropriate time and a very important question. Uh, I hope, hope people weren't disappointed that I went off, off, um, off piste for a week, uh, but I thought it was a very important question to answer. Please God, next week we will, um, return, uh, to, um, Yechezkel chapter two, verse eight. Um, we're coming to the end of this chapter, eight verses eight, nine, and ten. Um, particularly verse ten is extremely complicated. Um, please, God, we'll start with that next week. Um, in the meantime, I wish everybody a chodesh tov or a gitn chodesh if you're from Lithuania. Um, and um, and that, what can I say? Have a great week. Have a great elul. It's a time for tshuva and. Uh, Remembering, uh, you know, looking in the mirror. It's a time for spending time looking in the mirror. And, and not so Larry Lowenthal, because all he'll see is a ponytail. And uh, I don't know if that will help with Be nice, as before. It's Elul now. Be nice. Ponytail's okay. very pretty. <laughs> okay, okay. We can, we can forgive, we can forgive and forget. It's Elul, we can forgive and forget. Listen, everybody have a great week, have a great Chodesh, and have a great period of uh, introspection. And I'll see you all in health and happiness, please God, next Monday, where we will hopefully complete the <coughs> second chapter of Yechezkel. Call to to everybody. Yes, you're Thank you. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. It looks like we have to buy a new... Um, it looks like we have to buy a new Microsoft Office suite. Our old ones don't work on... Uh, you might have a newer one. You may be okay. In fact, I should see if you're okay. Yeah, I, I, I can't knit back. It's, it's, it's... Okay, honey, I'm... I'm...